Hello, and welcome to Golden Grenades, a podcast about birds with stories from those who worship them, all set against the heartwarming and cheery backdrop of the end of the world. My name is Kit, aka Yolo Birder off Twitter, and my special guests this week are Luke Massey and Katie Stacey. Luke is an award-winning wildlife photographer and cameraman turned agri-wilder on his 10-hectare farm in Asturias in northern Spain. After travelling the globe in search of wildlife, the guilt of his carbon footprint and passion to follow a childhood dream has taken over, and he now spends his day hanging out with some mountain sheep, staring at scrub, digging ponds, and trying to tame wild horses along with his partner, Katie Stacey. Katie is a wildlife writer, nature marketing consultant, and co-agri-wilder with Luke. After a few years of working as a broker in London, she saw the light and started travelling the globe as a dive instructor and safari camp manager before meeting Luke in the Zambian bush, where he wooed her with wild dogs and pangolins. Always passionate about writing, she liked the look of birds, but had no idea what they were. She soon joined Luke on his travels, putting their adventures into words for the likes of Geographical, BBC Wildlife and National Geographic, as well as a dabble presenting a short undercover tourist for BBC Three on the shady tiger tourism trade in Thailand. Now parents, Luke and Katie want to live as close to nature as possible with their son Roan and have him growing up knowing the difference between an osprey and a kestrel, a lesson Katie didn't learn until she was 26, apparently. Luke, Katie, hello and welcome to Golden Grenades. Hello, (laughs) thanks for having us. Katie's still reeling in embarrassment at that mis-ID. Maybe I didn't have my glasses on. I'm trying to find excuses now. We've all done it. I've mentioned on this podcast in an earlier episode about how I found my first rare bird and uh, got the ID wrong. And then I did it again in the same year. It wasn't a kestrel and an osprey, but it was almost as embarrassing. I'm not going to go there again. So as you know, this podcast is based on the frankly not too ridiculous idea of an imminent environmental apocalypse. And you must choose five birds to survive the devastation. Since we last saw each other at Bird Fair a few years ago, you've taken on a totally different challenge to photography and writing and your usual day jobs, and you've become farmers and agri-wilders. So in a way, you're literally doing what this podcast is all about. You're trying to bring species back from the brink, aren't you? Yeah, I mean, we're sat here. There's actually three red-billed chuffs flying over. I did warn you before we started recording. Come on, call (laughs) out, guys. Yeah, we're sat here in our vegetable patch. But yeah, we've taken on 10 hectares of an old cattle farm, which luckily had kind of started rewilding in a way. Um, And we say agri-wilding because we're very conscious that the main driving force in the area is agriculture. And we don't want to alienate the local farmers that have been working this land for a very, very long time. So we are using local livestock species to help us with nature and kind of, yeah, turn it into a little natural paradise and and save these species. And I guess maybe save could be a bit egotistical, but... Giving them a space to live alongside us. And I also think it's worth noting that at the moment we are doing it on a scale that's for self-sufficiency as opposed to the job. And at the moment it's not. Maybe in some capacity in the future it will be for us. But at the moment, our aim is to kind of be self-sufficient and live in harmony with the land that we now call home. That's amazing. How are you? I mean, I wouldn't even know where to start. How are you learning all the skills that you must need? Very much trial and error, (laughs) I would say. Um, And listening to podcasts and reading and speaking to people that are doing it and have done it. Like I say, it was quite lucky that areas of the land hadn't been grazed for a while, that the guy selling it to us, 
he just got basically too old to manage it and didn't have any family. So he slowly retreated from certain patches. So we have got a wonderful area of probably what a hectare and a half, two hectares of this incredible like blackthorn gorsy scrub, which, you know, you got in autumn migrating nightingales from it, um, melodious warbler breeding in there, sionized vipers basking underneath it. So we're very lucky in the fact that, you know, it wasn't a sterile canvas, so to speak glowworms that's another one that you know all, all our little scrubby areas have got glowworms in the other day we were planting shallots mm. um, in one of our veg beds and we just had some cover down obviously to stop the weeds coming through and we peeled it back and our son got very well he didn't know it was a glowworm but he gets excited about any insect and slimy thing yeah but he just yeah grabbed this glowworm and yeah really cool so it already had the the great foundations there to be a, a site for wildlife and I guess we're just trying to improve that in some way enhance enhance. yeah yeah give it all a helping hand and so it sounds like you've got some amazing species there already what is it you're hoping that with a with a little bit of extra help you'll be able to bring in well it's one of luke's birds so he'll go into more detail and they're already nesting here but red back stripes are probably he said luke said the other day to a local guy he was the local guy was saying you need to get rid of this grubbiness and luke said well why i'm I'm not farming sheep which is what he was inferring is what will your sheep eat he said if anything i'm farming red back shrike and that's where (laughs) they nest so we're going to keep that um and that you know it's turning things on their heads I suppose in terms of looking at the land in a different way and and what it offers in a different way too yeah and then I mean you're going right on the other end of the scale so we have Cantabrian brown bear in Asturias it's this kind of like the last remaining stronghold but I think the closest one at the minute if it hasn't strolled off further into the mountains is like 30 miles from us there's one individual but there is a study that's been done about their future expansion if they aren't persecuted and you know the habitat's correct and technically where we are within the next decade 15 years Cantabrian brown bear could be here so you know you've got redback shrike which is pretty awesome and is here already but I think I said wouldn't it be amazing you know on my son's 21st birthday to be able to like look out the curtains and possibly even on the hillside or somewhere there'd be a bear grazing or even to find the footprints of the agri-wilding rewilding you kind of let natural processes take hold and also if you're doing rewilding properly you don't do it for a particular species but of course there are species that we want here and we're planting lots of fruit and nut trees and bushes to hopefully provide food for all manner of wildlife but hopefully one day if a bear was to pass through it well, could have be a, welcome yeah, they'd be welcome <laughs> and have a nice little stroll through buffet Oh, I mean, that would be incredible. And I guess as well, like you say, if you're not sort of targeting specific things, you're just making it a buffet for everybody, then it's going to be so exciting over the next few years just seeing what does arrive. It's fantastic. Most of us over here, we put out things in the garden for the birds and and see what you get or make hedgehog houses and stuff like that. But you've got this unbelievable blank canvas where you could you could get all sorts. It must be really exciting. Yeah, and I guess in creating that habitat, I spent a lot of October, November, once everything kind of headed off, smashing gorse, being an elephant. We had really leggy gorse that hadn't, nothing had grazed it or anything for a very long time. And I just spent a few days smashing it to pieces, all in the aim of making it all compact and spiky again for Dartford warblers. And then a few weeks later, I found a Dartford warbler kind of 50 metres away from that gorse. So hopefully, you know, next year, year after Dartford warbler nesting in that patch. Fantastic. We talked slightly just before we started recording there about lockdown and the impact. You've set up home in, in northern Spain and travel's now not allowed and based on your previous jobs as you know photographer cameraman luke and katie being a a wildlife journalist writer i mean i guess that's all just ended hasn't it 
yes, I think today is probably like the year anniversary of the last flight I took, but I guess it's been a kind of opportunity. Opportunity. It's allowed us to focus on this place entirely because we haven't been able to travel. I haven't had to turn down work because there is no work. <laughs> and but I never I never did want to travel for the rest of my life. We've seen some incredible things, been to incredible places, and it's almost like I've retired at 29, but this is a whole new career. I mean, it is, you know, I've had no wild thinker, which is what we're calling this place. It's, it's a realising a childhood dream for me. And Katie's come along for the ride, and I think it's a dream for her. Yeah, too. absolutely. <laughs> it's spectacular. There's definitely a sense of peace existing in the way that we now do. And I think for us, we want everyone to slow down. I think COVID can do a bit of that and like realize the natural world is in absolute peril mainly because of humans and if we all disappeared I'm sure it probably would recover I've been to Chernobyl and it is amazing to see the wildlife bounce back there well I well, read something really yes. interesting someone posted earlier human bashing it takes away a lot of motivation for people to do anything because all they think is oh well we're humans and we're we're the reason it's all gone horribly wrong we can also be a huge positive uh, we can be a keystone species. We can be creators and instigators. And and that's, I think, what we've been able to do here so far with a huge amount of work and learnings yet to go. And we want to inspire people to do yeah, that. Exactly. Not not just, you know, when um, last year we did a crowdfunder because some of the land adjoining us came up for sale and was under threat, basically. And we, unfortunately, because of COVID, we just weren't in a situation. We'd had a bank loan and stuff turned down. And this amazing community of people came forward and, and raised the funds for us to be able to purchase this land. Our aim going forward is to inspire people to do this, be it, yeah, 10 hectares if you want to do that and you're able to. But we're very realistic in the fact that not everyone can do that. But imagine in your garden, you know, just those little things instead of what's that awful plastic AstroTurf lawn that's going everywhere now. Oh, and now. it's horrendous. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now plastic hedging. Um, but paving your whole garden and stuff like that just I guess inspire people that you don't need to do it on 10 hectares but you know you can sprinkle some wildflower seeds you can let the end of your garden go a bit wild and you'll probably get a lot more joy from I was about to say a sparrow but unfortunately sparrows are so rare now in the UK but let's say a blue tit coming through your garden in your blimmin' astroturf lawn <laughs> you know I guess that's our aim as well yeah. I, don't, I, I mean your original question was about stopping traveling I guess yeah I've, I've kind of forgotten what travel's like now I said to Katie the other day do you think we'll ever leave here do we need to leave here? I'm of course I want to you know half of Katie's family is Ambien and I'd love to take Roan to places where you know well he's, he's met some of them but like see his um, roots basically and, and see the place where Katie and I met and there's other places where Katie and I've been you know I'd love to take him to but I, yeah. it, it's really hard to talk about the future of travel and who knows what's going to go on. Well, you don't have to worry about it for a while yet anyway. And you, you, you're in the ideal situation where you can just put it out your mind and do your new day job at the moment, which is managing Wild Thinker and bringing up the wee man. And what, a, what an amazing place to bring him up as well. Yeah, thankfully, he's really into it already. Even as a, what, 19 months old, he is just obsessed with turning over rocks it's very difficult to go anywhere very quickly because he has to look underneath everything and loves a bird loves a bird he spots them before we do now he's really really yeah that's excellent very so we missed a bear so he has got some things to be in trouble for um because we were changing his nappy just as we were changing doing a team nappy my friend was like oh bear bear and like as i looked up from his nappy bear went behind a bush and never reappeared yeah <laughs> You'll never live that down. No. 
Let's start talking about your five birds. Tell me first about bird number one. Bird number one. 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 Sure. So bird number one is the green sandpiper. All of these birds kind of relate something to a memory and, and home, I guess, which is quite interesting. You know, we, we spent ages up a canopy tower in Brazil getting stung by a myriad of different species of tropical wasps, basically watching a harpy eagle on the nest. And, uh, you know, there's, there's encounters like that. But these five are all kind of within the UK and now Spain. But the green sandpiper is, is Luke's, how he cut his teeth on birding. So this is very much his bird. So I grew up in Hertfordshire and probably everyone who's ever driven along the A1 from Northern England to London has driven past these guys' favourite spot in the UK. It's a little nature reserve called Lempsford Springs. Um, but it's an old Victorian watercress beds with artesian wells, which I'm not going to go through the technicalities, but basically it means the water never freezes. I think the water never goes below a certain temperature, which means it's great for wildlife, has freshwater shrimp in there. And it's one of the best sites for green sandpipers to overwinter in, in the UK. But I think I was around 13 or 14 years old. And I, I don't know why it stood out to me, but I found it on like the Hearts and Middlesex Wildlife Trust's website. And I rung the warden and said, you know, I'm a, I'm a 13, 14 year old boy um, into wildlife and into photography. And I wonder if I could come to your reserve, blah, 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 because you have to have a key to get in. And he was like, oh, yeah, sure. Just turn up tomorrow. We're actually doing a work party, which they do these volunteer every, I think it was first Sunday of the month or something. Can you go in? You basically rake cress up and, and basically manage the habitat. So that was my first experience of managing a habitat for wildlife. And now here we are, how many years on, managing a very big habitat. And actually, Wild Fink is bigger than Lempsford Springs. I probably never would have thought that when I was going to Lempsford. But basically, that's where I cut my teeth. Barry Trevis, the warden, took me under his wing. And I learned so much about birds um, and nature and nature management. But he and Ken Smith have been basically doing a study on green sandpipers. I think they rung the first one in February 1983. So it's coming up to 40 years, this study they've done. You know, they've, they've examined the pellets that green sandpipers cough up. So they work out that they eat, I think it's like 8,000 shrimps a day or something crazy. But basically we set up a little hide down one end of the reserve and I'd sit in this tiny little, it's called a Fensman hide. It was like bamboo poles with this very old canvas over the top. Go first thing in the morning and wait for these sandpipers to come and they'd fly in. You'd hear them calling, so you'd get all excited and then they'd swoop in in front of you and bob up and down along the buns and go and eat all these freshwater shrimps migration is always what gets it gets me but that's always what i use to like hook people into wildlife and, and birds when you say yeah. birds are boring i'll go and say you know well you know that brent goose it spends its summer breeding with polar no breeding with polar bears that would be a crazy <laughs> cross species but you know breeding raising its chicks when polar bears might come and eat his eggs and stuff like that. And now it's in the kind of Kent marshes and the Thames estuary. So I try and hook people with that kind of thing. But there was one individual yeah. that I, I can't remember if I ringed her or I definitely was there when she was ringed in 2008, a female. And they did this colour ringing. So she was seen, she returned over a very long period of time. So that was 2008. The last time she was seen was 2014. And she was seen for 525 days over that period of time at Lentford Springs. And they put a tracker on her in 2013, but she was a bit of a sly one and she was never caught again. So they couldn't download the data off the tracker to know where she went. But then there was another one that was ringed in 2010 and he's actually still going. I spoke to Barry yesterday. He's still at Lentford Springs yesterday. He was there bobbing about eating shrimp um, after being ringed in 2010. But he was tagged and they were able to download his data. And he crossed from Lempsford to Denmark in one day. And then from Incredible. Denmark, he got to his breeding site in Sweden. And if he returns this spring, so 
So he's still there at the minute. He'll go back to breed and then he'll turn up again, let's say June, July or something possibly, or maybe a bit later. If he turns up then, it will be the longest longevity record for green sandpiper ever. It's one of those birds that I guess very much is my home bird and just a, a cool species that I learned so much from. And then actually to round up the green sandpiper on my birthday last year. That's the luego. There's our neighbour off. Um, yeah, on my birthday last year, we've dug two ponds and I opened the curtains and I saw a movement in the pond and it was just like some horrid, like green slimy water at the bottom at this point because it hadn't really rained to fill it up at all. And on my birthday, it was a green sandpiper bobbing around the edge of the pond. <laughs> I literally couldn't believe my eyes. <laughs> oh, amazing. That's my birthday. There's a green sandpiper on Wild Finker. So, you know, it's come full circle. That's excellent. Katie, I'm, I'm assuming that you took credit for that and said that you brought it as a birthday present and it was all Exactly, planned. yes. <laughs> That's uh, great. Uh, like you say, the migration is such a hook. And the more people I speak to on this podcast, everybody is enthralled to migration and birds that go away and come back and how they mean more almost, I think, to you in terms of an emotional attachment to birds who, who go away and come back again. Uh, yeah, it's amazing that rake and watercress, you know, you develop that attachment to this bird. But what I didn't realise, and they lay their eggs in old thrush and crow nests or even squirrel drays. I knew about the thrush, but I didn't know about the squirrel yeah, trees. That's really interesting. I mean, it's it's one of those birds that I love and I still need to learn a lot about because obviously the one that was here in Spain, that was September. I guess that was on its way to Africa because, again, it's also a bird we've seen in Zambia on the back of a hippo, yeah. common sandpipers and green sandpipers bobbing about on the back of a hippo. Amazing little birds. Right, yeah. let's move on. Bird number two. 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 Bird number two is the nightingale. And it's one of those birds that, is actually only in very recent history has become, I guess, a, a big thing in our, both of our lives. This mm, is um, mm. a species that everyone has heard of because of mainly, as we found out, Vera Lynn, the nightingale sang in Berkeley Square. And a few years back, Katie and I always try and make different films um, when we aren't working for someone else. And we wanted to make a film called The Flyways to tell the magic of migration and the threats. You know, I've worked with Chris Packham and actually Katie came as well when we did Cyprus and Malta. So you've got those threats um, but you've also got these magical journeys. Yeah, we were going to have five main characters and explore their migration routes, but also kind of the cultural stories around each of them, you know, birds and their influence in art and in music. Yeah. But we couldn't get the budget for it. And we realised that we didn't actually have to have five characters. We could just have one character, the nightingale. The nightingale could tell all of those stories that we dreamt of telling. And it was a much more achievable, attainable goal in terms of making a, a feature-length documentary yeah and when we told people you know about the project and mentioned I think it was Egyptian vulture but basically every time we mentioned nightingale that was what people clicked onto that's what got people oh yeah oh nightingale oh so and so oh she had one singing a gun oh Vera Lynn oh this that that mm. so we're like hang on yeah we don't need these five species let's just see the nightingale so we, we kind of put a plan together. Kate spent a very long time kind of researching all these stories. Um, and luckily, you know, it's the most versified bird in literature, they say. And we did a crowdfunder, got the funding for it. And then Katie went and got pregnant. I had nothing to do with that. Um, <laughs> she couldn't come along with me. Yeah, we but... had this whole shoot planned kind of for the month before I was due. Um, so Luke had to go and do it on his own. <laughs> yeah, oh, completely on my own. We had Will Rose helped us with the animation, Nick Allen on sound, and then a great guy called Austin Ferguson kind of came along on some of the shoots as my camera assistant and second camera. But we were a very small team. You know, normally when you're making documentary, there's tons of people 
people involved and it was basically the five of us and then we had some people that kind of lent us footage which was really useful as well but yeah I just went on this journey and Katie was here in Spain heavily pregnant trying to manage all our chickens and everything else managing a build as well Mm. and and organizing all the shoots and making sure I was in place at the right time and with the right people at the right time blah 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 and yeah I shot mainly around the UK but popped to Berlin and just the stories involved in the nightingale and the people connected to it It, it's just a bird that is so there's so much to it and I think it represents so much everyone talks about its song and its song is incredible everyone knows that and I think that's what's made it so famous but you know you've got Dr Bethan Roberts who studied the romantics I met her at John Keats his house where he wrote an ode to a nightingale you know interviewing Mm. people like her Um, Sam Lee singing with nightingales you know we two years running that was was, actually the first story we filmed for the nightingale was um sam lee uh the year before so i was able to go with luke and it was just mesmerizing it's oh just it gives me shivers even recollecting it it's one of the most incredible experiences being in that wood with sam and he has um he invites a, a guest along either a singer or a musician and they they duet with the nightingale in the dead of night and it's just astonishingly magical yeah, and I've, I've heard Sam talk about that on, on another podcast and also watching your film of that. That segment, it just makes you so jealous. <laughs> I was just like, oh, I want to be there. That must be incredible. Yeah, no, it was, it was absolutely amazing. David Rothenberg is another musician. So I headed to Berlin. So obviously the, the Nightingale has declined huge numbers in the UK. Um, and there's various reasons for that and, and theories. Um, but in Berlin, it's booming. You know, and it's also the edge of its range because then you're looking at thrush nightingale once you kind of go out of Berlin almost. And I can't remember how many pairs there are in the city, but almost every street corner, me and the sound man, Nick, went out there, stood at bus stops and you got a nightingale singing, literally on a bus stop. You know, every little scrubby, not even scrubby patch, you know, a tree and there's a nightingale singing. There was one tiny little park and I think we had nine nightingales singing in there next to blocks of flats and stuff like that. And so it's just incredible crazy to to hear and, and see it and and what it means to the people there as well but i met another musician called david rothenberg who plays with um various different animals but berlin is means a lot to him and he plays his clarinet he creates is it interspecies yeah. music he calls it he does a yeah. lot of kind of music with i think he's done with whales song but yeah he does a lot with the nightingale as well and another fantastic musician creating yeah. incredibly exciting yeah, and, yeah. You know, Sarah Darwin, who I think is Charles Darwin's is a great, great, great granddaughter. Turns out she's set up a, a nightingale project called Forschkenfall Nachtigall in Berlin, which is a thing called um, Picnic and Posy, where again, people, you know, there's a nightingale singing just behind and people from all walks of life. You know, there was Syrian refugees and in Syria, obviously we couldn't visit there, but the nightingale is um, entwined in their culture as well. And now they've obviously had to flee from Syria, but they're living in Berlin and, and uh, something from their homeland is still there in Berlin at the same time, which is fantastic, you That's know, right. and kind of a nice story in a way. Of course, they've migrated not out of choice, but, you know, you've got this migratory bird that crosses, you know, there is no borders for a migratory bird. Um, I think that's the beauty mm-hmm. of bird migration. They can just go as they please. And it is a species that we get here on the farm in migration. But when you asked that question earlier about what would we like to stay here, I'd love it if a nightingale bred. I've actually got one more pond to build on the edge of that scrubby patch I mentioned. And hopefully, you know, actually what we're in now, middle of February. So I guess probably another month, maybe a bit, six weeks, we'll have nightingales passing through. 
and hopefully one goes into that scrub, sees the little bit of wet pond as well and thinks, you know what, I'm going to start singing and try and get a girl in here. Um, yeah. Wishes I'd love to have on the farm. That'd be incredible to be able to lie in bed listening to nightingales sing. Yeah, I look forward to those videos on your website of you playing music alongside singing nightingales, you know, getting your cello out like Beatrice Harrison or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Roan's very good on the harmonica. I was say. So, you know. <laughs> give him a bit more time and maybe Sam Lee will have a competitor or maybe Sam Lee can come here and duet with Roan and Nightingales. Gotta have a dream that sounds awesome. One thing I've always thought was, was quite interesting is that newspapers in Victorian times used to actually give the location of singing territorial males so that people could go listen to them and tour companies you know bus companies used to do trips to go and hear them and it's almost like they were like the, the early sort of rare bird alert services you know like these you just can't imagine like Victorian newspapers yeah. putting adverts saying, go and hear a nightingale over there. You know, it's amazing. It's nuts, yeah. isn't it? I mean, in a part of me thinks how depressing as mm. well. Where's it all gone wrong? But I think if people heard the nightingale, they would go. Well, obviously it's so, Londoners actually, because that was Londoners going out to a place like Rickmansworth. I grew up not far from Rickmansworth and I can, there's no nightingales there anymore. But it'd be brilliant if people did still want to go, go jump on the bus. As long as they don't start importing them from the countryside, which they also did in Victorian times. Put that them is, in cages in the oh, yeah, oh, through, they were yeah. popular caged bird, weren't they? But they didn't do well, I believe. That they often sort of like committed suicide in cages and just thrashed themselves against the bars until they died because they just couldn't bear to be caged. Yeah, it was a pretty, uh, we, I don't think we put it in the documentary, but there were some pretty grim descriptions of, of what they then oh. did once captured. I mean, I'm, I'm jealous of anybody who sees a nightingale, and you know, because. Being from the northeast, we of course have never never had them up here. The, you know, the best we can do is the is the black cap gets called or used to get called in some parts of Northumberland is the northern nightingale. But yeah, fantastic birds. Right. Well, listen, let's crack on. Let's move on to your third choice and bird number three. Bird number three. 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 Bird number three is the redback shrike, which Katie mentioned earlier, and that is a, a new addition to the list. But again, like what I was saying about relating back to home, I guess it's our, would you say it's our emblematic bird of wild finger? I'd say so. Yeah, definitely. Even though it's a migrant, you know, what we're doing here isn't just for the redback shrike, but it's one of those species that is so reliant on what we're doing here. And I think even 1980, I want to say 1983, but it might have been 1988. I think that's the last breeding pair in the UK. We always love traveling and we fell in love with Spain. We can never have done what we're doing here on the scale we're doing in the UK. We just didn't have the financial resources to do it. But it'd be wonderful if, you know, places like NEP are springing up. So if a redback shrike finds somewhere like NEP, I'm sure they would start breeding again. You know, they love dung beetles. So they're so reliant on agriculture in terms of habitat and food. So you can't have livestock that's heavily wormed because obviously then there's not going to be the, the insect life for them. And we know insects are crashing everywhere. But they also need that kind of messy scrub. So our ones actually nest in that scrub that was already here. I found out they're kind of, they can be colonial nesters. Um, so we've got two pairs on the farm and we're only on 10 hectares. And now we've got our livestock. So we've got nine shalder sheep and two astacon horses. Um, and we're going to get two or three cows as well to like add to the mix. It was two weeks after those astacons arrived. I was sat trying to tame them and they are a lot tamer now. But at this point, you know, they wouldn't come near me. We made a tiny enclosure for them and they'd get literally on the furthest side away as I sat talking softly, sweet nothings to them. Yeah. (laughs) But while I was there, you know, these dung beetles blundering in and landing on their poo, um, which was just so exciting for me because 
<laughs> they've we've got the horses, the Astacons, since or after their Redback Shrikes have left. So come the first week of May, when hopefully they turn up again, we've got a new food source for them. And it's just one of these birds, again, I think for the migration, but they do a really bizarre migration. Um, I don't think they like crossing water. I think from here they go like all the way like southeast and then kind of go round. I think I remember seeing them. Oh, okay. I remember I showed it to you. Mm. They don't go straight down. Um, yeah. But anyhow, so it's, it's one of uh, the reason I say it's emblematic for us is because we're British and we've lost it in the UK. Hopefully mm-hmm. with these new things like NEP and, and Wild East is another movement in East Anglia that's kind of trying to get, I think it's 20% of yeah. East Anglia rewilded, basically. You know, the, these things are coming back and and hopefully Redback Shrikes will possibly pop over. I know you get the odd one over there and they say, oh, you know, this isn't too bad, let's breed. Um, that would be fantastic. But for us, yeah, it's, it's a species that I'd be actually gutted if we lost. But I was so, so excited when... We looked. This is the first place we looked at when we were looking to buy somewhere. I think yeah. we looked at it nine more times. But I think the first time we walked down the drive, and there was a load of early purple orchids springing up to the left of the drive. So you know that. Forget what the house or anything which is falling down looked like. I was like, well, that's pretty yeah. good. And then on the way out, I said to the old boy, "Oh, do you get vultures here?" And he shook his head like, "No, no, no." I think he thought I didn't want vultures here. Yeah, yeah. And then a big shadow flew over. Griffin vulture went over. So you know, <laughs> these were all kind of fine. but none of those times when we looked did I see or hear redback shrike. I don't know what it is. I guess it's like the green sandpiper. I just love a shrike, you know. And any bird that like picks things and skewers them, it's pretty cool, isn't it? I absolutely adore shrikes. I don't see them very often, but you know, they're one of the few birds that I'll go out of my way to twitch if I have to, if I've not seen any for a while. There was a mask strike in Hartlepool in the last lockdown, which I had to, you know, skip. But that was that was heartbreaking. But shrikes, amazing, amazing birds. Any bird in a bandit mask for me, I'm an absolute <laughs> sucker. I'm so, so predictable yeah. in that sense. But catches its prey, sticks them on spikes. And have you heard the story about how in RSPB Minsmere, I guess it must have been sort of 70s, early 80s, maybe there was breeding redback shrikes there. They'd taken to going into the sand martin colony, going into the into the nests, taking the chicks and then hanging the chicks on barbed wire fences for all the visitors parking their cars to, to then witness. Brutal. Nature is brutal, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And they're named after the, the, the Latin name Lanius is from the Latin Lanio to tear to pieces, which is even better. There's nothing not to like about this bird. Right, well, so let's move on and we'll we'll chat now about bird number four. Bird number four. I didn't know if I was allowed to choose this, but you give me permission, is the peregrine falcon. Yes. And to celebrate, one of our cockerels has entered the vegetable. <laughs> so starting off, it, for both of us, it's a very important bird, I guess, definitely in yeah. our kind of professional relationship together. But for me, my grandparents took me to various places. And one of the places was Slimbridge. And I remember seeing my first ever peregrine falcon. I don't know the name of the hide, but I remember going into this like wooden hide. It's got an upstairs bit and there was a birder there. I remember look, he saying, oh, there's a peregrine falcon. But I must have been, you know, seven or eight years old. I wasn't old at all. And looking through his scope and right out on like the bank of the seven or something, there was this peregrine falcon. And I remember looking through that scope thinking, blimey, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And then from then on, I've just had various relations with peregrine falcons. There was another one. I call them relations experiences. <laughs> it's true. Um, we did get very close to Stephen. Yeah. Stephen Linda, who we'll come on to in a minute. But there was another one where we used to get these amazing flocks, the Golden Plover, just outside St Albans, where I grew up. And I'd cycle out there 
and sit on the edge of the field to photograph these golden plover which are pretty cool birds but obviously they're also delicious for a peregrine falcon i just remember them all lifting off once and just seeing this gray bullet just above the ground shooting down the field and literally smashed a golden plover right in front of me just one of those birds that used to the magic roundabout in hemel hempstead there used to be one that roosted on the building there and i think for me they're just so adaptable and you know it's one of those species along with the red kite that i guess has come back has seen a resurgence in my 29 years on earth i never dreamt i'd have them nesting on the tine which which we do you know and it's it's just amazing they're incredible birds and there's one particular pair that kate and i worked with a few years back i was actually filming beavers in holland and katie tagged along to this shoot i was literally filming beavers all hours of the day it felt like and stickleback as well and I was on Instagram, just like, I guess you call it doom scrolling now. And it comes up with like posts you may like. And there was this picture of a peregrine falcon. I just clicked on it. And this guy's feed was just picture after picture after picture, mobile phone pictures of peregrine falcons doing like model poses, you know, over the shoulder, looking down the lens <laughs> with a city skyline in the background. And I clicked on it. And this guy basically had a pair of peregrine falcons trying to nest on his balcony in Chicago. So the Chicago skyline was the background. And I said... I don't think I told you, did I? I just messaged him. Yeah, yeah, you messaged him and said, oh, could I come and photograph those? And the guy was like, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> and uh, The first I knew was Luke's like, so I think I'm going to go to Chicago um, next week. And I was like, great, I'll come with you. Katie has like an auntie or something that lived in Chicago. Yeah, I was like, oh, so it'd be nice to see her. I haven't seen her in years. And Daisy, the owner of the flat, was just the most amazing, accommodating person. He used to be in a band and he'd like kind of couch surfed his way around Europe. So he was very chilled about the fact that two strangers were going to essentially come and sleep on his sofa. But as you know, like peregrines, they're evil, you know, <laughs> you know, you would. Ferocious protectors. Golden grenades. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was kind of crazy that they were nesting on his balcony, but he was like, oh yeah, you know, I'll be out there having a cigarette or barbecuing and they'll land on the railing next to me. And I was like, nah, this is weird. So what we'd do is kind of photograph through like a tiny, he had like French sliding doors on the balcony. So we'd photograph through a tiny gap there. And then when they both left the nest, I'd sneak out, set up a camera, set up a shot and then run back inside and be on a um, trigger to do it. One particular time I was doing it and I was facing into the house setting the shot up make sure the camera was level with the nest literally so it was in a flower pot two foot from the nest like the, the back of my back was that close to the nest linda and steve they were called so i can't remember because we call them the perrys so linda perry from four non blondes and steve perry from journey yes. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. linda and steve were off the nest and basically i just heard this whoosh and then like a clatter of something hitting metal and katie was like oh i said oh what what katie uh, Linda's back and I was like well, does she look angry you know no alarm call or anything <laughs> and she was like no she doesn't actually as I like slowly turned around and I'm literally yeah two foot from a wild female peregrine falcon sat on this railing just looking at me and then she just literally like hops off the railing steps down to in her box sits on the eggs and shuffle you know does as they do and shuffles oh. the eggs under her Daisy living there obviously they saw him every day they saw humans every day and at this point we'd been there for yeah five days or something and I mm -hmm. guess they were like well these people haven't done anything to us and that was it like literally incredible I don't know I'm not so oh, it's a world first but I don't know if anyone in definitely recent history ethically without failing making the nest fail has ever been that close and been able to document a wild peregrine falcon nest like that yes yeah, so we did three trips basically documenting the story of these peregrine falcons just hanging out on the balcony with linda and steve photographing the chicks and, and it was this whole community around them the the condo 
itself obviously Daisy had them people came to visit and look through the glass at them but then the other condo buildings around could see the nest the peregrines would like drop northern flicker and american woodcock heads off in the pool so i met all the like um janitors i guess you know they were like oh yeah i always have to clean out the dead animals out of the pool before the tenants come out and go swimming but yeah there was one shot of linda that i really wanted to get at night when she perched but the only way of getting it was leaning out this window 26 stories and katie literally had to hold on to my ankles Stacey let us cut the blind open and then I like went as far as far as I could get out the window I got into oh. European wildlife the year with it so it's quite yeah. it was worth it and I it's survived an, I know exactly the photo you mean it's an incredible picture and the sort of series of photos that you've got and I know Katie's written a story was it for BBC Wildlife magazine Katie at the time yeah and a few people quite, took it. Quite but yeah lot, BBC yeah. Wildlife it got, took it. yeah it got well covered isn't it I mean it, like you say it's such a massively unique story and to get that close and Chicago, I think it's got 22 pairs of peregrine falcons in the city itself. And they were like extinct or extirpated in the 1980s from the city. So it's a real success story. Mm. Yeah, um, but, incredible. you know, well, you know, golden grenades, it was really interesting to defend their nests from other peregrine falcons. But you also got like, I think turkey vultures every now and again, they'd come through the city and they'd like go and just dive bomb them. You know, one day Steve killed five yellow-billed cuckoos in one day. And he didn't actually have to swoop into them because the cuckoos are not the strongest flyer. You know, he'd, he'd fly yeah. underneath them and then just turn around on his back, nick them. I actually got a yellow bill cuckoo's bill in, in my little treasure box in our house, oh, <laughs> which was really good. <laughs> so no, just one of those birds that for me has been throughout my life. And then obviously Katie joined in the fold as well. And, and that, you know, that has got to be the best. If someone said, what's the best story you've ever covered? Yeah. yeah. I think it's the best story I've ever heard. <laughs> it's just so cool. And the, I mean, I love peregrines, but you actually know peregrines by their first names, you know, which is even better. <laughs> Again, amazing migrations. There was one that they banded, not one from that nest, but a Chicago peregrine got found in Ecuador. Well, we're going to go on and on about peregrines and how awesome they are all day. But unfortunately, we don't have time. We best go on to your fifth and final bird. So tell us about bird number five. Bird number five. five, five. It's the, uh, I was going to go for the red kite, but I actually decided to go for the black kite because that's a bird now that we get at Wild Finca. And also it's a bird that, it's a migrant and we've seen them in cool various places. Katie was always, you always liked birds. You always say that. Yeah, I get me. very excited about them. And it was always super frustrating for me that I just had no idea what it was. I remember doing a camper vanning trip with some girlfriends around Australia and they really hated me driving because I would tend to veer off the road when <laughs> something big flew across. Probably wedge-tailed eagle or something. <laughs> I know, but this is it. I just get really annoyed because I never knew what it was I was looking at. So that was actually probably one of the one of the coolest things about Luke because he could actually tell me what I was looking at. But basically, Katie's parents live in south of France and there was this amazing marshes. There was all kinds of stuff. You know, I found bitten nests and great white egret. But there was one particular day, I think Katie came to join me one evening. This flock of like 24 black kites just floated in to roost in the marshes. And I was like, oh, that's so cool, Katie. You know, you've seen them in Zambia and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they, they're migratory birds. And then obviously now yeah. we, we have them here as well. So yeah, there were those black kites. And then again, it's another project we did after the peregrine. So then we kind of didn't want to get too niche, but we started doing more and more stuff with urban wildlife. I started researching and I found this uh, PhD student doing a study on black kites in Delhi, but we couldn't work with that student. So we we're looking for another story. And yeah, do you want to take over? Well, a better story presented itself, thankfully. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, these two brothers who were rehabilitating black kites. But what was super interesting was the biggest threat to black kites, 70% of the injuries that they were receiving 
was from the toy kites that, well, not just the children, it's, it's a huge pastime in across India and I think Pakistan is kite flying. Um, and it's very competitive and it's actually incredibly dangerous because they reel out, they can reel out these kites for like a kilometer. And the competition element is that you cut each other's kite and it's the last kite kind of standing. And the string that they use is, is glass coated. It's called manja and it's totally invisible really when you've got it reeled out. And so black kites, which are, were coming in. I think it's um, 20, 20 million pairs or 20 million kites. I always get, I'm rubbish no, on no, numbers. You are terrible because that's 20 million people <laughs> living in Delhi. <laughs> but it has the densest population of black kites in the world. And at the time there was 15 breeding pairs per square kilometre. There was lots of really fascinating elements to the story about the culture. One of the other reasons that the black kites coming into contact with the toy kites was because people were feeding the black kites part of their kind of giving back to those with less i think uh... yeah i think in in islam it's like giving to those less fortunate than yourselves it's something that you do after prayers and things that benefit you know they feed the monkeys and they people that don't have any food feed the stray cats but they also throw meat up to the black kites we were at Nadim's yeah. house and having lunch with him, he, he went and did his afternoon prayers. And then he thought, oh, you must go out on the roof after prayers. So he went out on the roof. And yeah, there's this like tornado of black kites. But there's this like the old bit, I think like the Muslim quarter in Delhi is this just like maze of little alleyways. It's incredible. Um, and people living on top of each other. And we said, I, and I was taking these shots of people throwing meat up to the kites. But I said, hi, oh, do you think, Nadim, is there any way of getting like up there? Because there was this like rooftop that basically was above the kites. And he was like, oh yeah, led us on this merry maze, walking through people's kitchens, going like stepping over them as they were having lunch in their living room and stuff like that, up various ladders. And we were eventually above the people feeding the kites. And again, like that peregrine shot, Katie grabbed my ankles and I just basically <laughs> leant out over this tornado of kites and just started shooting away and Amazing. yeah got this picture that got into wildlife photography for the year so that was quite a highlight of the thing but like Kate says I mean just for us you know the nightingale peregrines black kites you know the, all these stories revolve around nature but they also revolve around people they're like such a big part of it and seeing those different cultures and how the wildlife lives alongside them and survives and in some places doesn't survive but you know black kites and peregrine falcons they're both quite a good example of birds that actually thrive in human areas if allowed to yeah fascinating and both great stories that you've covered there these kite strings that are basically just garroting birds aren't they like and people, I think yeah. numerous people and, die yeah, in yeah. because of it. You know, like motorcyclists driving along and get a kite string through their. Well, the competition like, oh. is to cut other people's kites, and only one kite is left standing, and the, less, the rest of the kites are, you know, thrown to the wind and end up all over the place. And, like I said, trees inv and, invisible. Yeah. And people on motorbikes are literally getting, yeah, well, slashed. I've heard stories of that. I mean, really, yeah, gruesome absolutely horrific but to think of 15 breeding pairs per square kilometer of black kites in in delhi i mean that must just be some sight yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely everywhere you know every top of lampposts but then like going to the meat market and then yeah getting very excited and finding out what we're doing and katie just surrounded by I don't know, like 200 people and everyone's just throwing meat left <laughs> right and center the, the um, meat throwing festival i've got this image of you as well now you've talked about getting going up to get the shot above the kite and going through all these people's houses and kitchens and stepping over. I would have been so tempted to run back down and pretend I was Jason Bourne. You know? <laughs> it was literally like one of those scenes, but in slow motion with a guy like struggling with his tripod and his heavy camera bag and stuff. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Oh man, hearing this, I'm just I'm so jealous of all these stories. It sounds incredible. Right, 
we're going to get down to the nitty gritty now. You've chosen your five favorite birds, but as you know, this podcast not only makes you choose five species to survive the environmental Ragnarok, but to pour petrol on the fire, you must then choose one of those to go head to head against my favorite, the deadly peregrine. Now, this could be interesting. Which bird are you going to choose? Well, has your peregrine won yet at all? You you won't have heard the last episode of series one, episode 10, which was with Will Rose, our, our mutual friend Will. And oh. finally, the peregrine did win. So he's, <laughs> he's, he's 9-1 down at this moment in time. So which bird is it going to be? Got to be. Well, yeah. I'm going to say Peregrine Falcon, but I think Katie wants to go even further. Did you say you wanted to be Linda or Steve? Oh, it's got to be Linda. I mean, Steve's a sweetie, but Linda was just... I, I think that's where I got a lot of my mothering pointers from Linda. Right, Katie, she was just a fantastic mother. Katie she? often tears pieces of meat up for her own and just shoves it down <laughs> his throat. <yeah. laughs> well, I think, you know, obviously an incredible choice. And not only have you chosen the world's best species, but you've chosen a, a particular individual, Linda Perry. So I think she sounds like an incredible bird of an incredible species. So I think finally, I can say that this week's winner of Golden Grenades is the Peregrine Falcon. Get in! But, but specifically Linda. <laughs> the queen. The so queen of Peregrine Falcons. We, we can both win this week and that's uh, that's a rare thing. Brilliant. Well, Luke and Katie, it's been absolutely brilliant catching up with you guys. Um, and I suspect you're going to have your handful, hands full this year with Wild Finker and teaching Roan Kestrel identification. Um, I'll be in but, charge of that. Okay. <laughs> um, but other than that, have you got anything else on the horizon to look out for? Or are you really just hunkering down and... and um, we do. Well... Please do follow Wild Finker on Instagram yes. and Will Facebook at Wild Finker. And very quickly, one of the birds that I wanted to put in but was vetoed was the bearded vulture. Um, I know there's been lots of excitement around it in the UK. We've done a fantastic story, few stories with the Vulture Conservation Foundation, and we are working on a documentary with Lizzie Daly to tell that story. Um, we are a year behind thanks to COVID, but it is happening. Uh, so I just want to get a little, you know, Fantastic. shout out to the bearded vulture there as well. We'll look out for that. Bone breaker. in Spanish, which yeah. literally means bone breaker. It's a pretty good name. It's a great band name as well. Yeah. <laughs> thanks so much, guys. You're very welcome. That was really fun. Well, that's your lot for this week, folks. Thanks for listening and do join me again next week when my special guest will be the musician and songwriter Fife Dangerfield. Until then, bye for now.